The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 108 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier, and before we get into this week's amazing conversation, I do want to thank uh, some of our reviewers. We had three new five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I want to thank listeners Brandon Whiting, uh, SSJ Dirt Cycle, and I will say that's these are of course usernames. SSJ Dirt Cycle is not someone I know, but whom I've gotten to know on Instagram. We've shared some messages back and forth. Seems like just a, a super guy, as well as our friend Garrett Batty. If you have not listened to Garrett's uh, episode where we have just the most incredible conversation, he is the director of the new movie Out of Liberty. It is in theaters now. Go see Out of Liberty. And Garrett, thank you so much for the great review. I also want to thank uh, our friend Nick Galetti for connecting me with our guest this week, uh, Charlene Mullins Glenn. What an incredible woman. You are about to be blown away. She has become one of my new heroes. The things that she has accomplished in her life, just making the world a better place. She is an incredible person. You will love this conversation. And this week in my Latter-day life, I'll tell you a lesson I learned one morning when I was not in a great mood at the gym. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, right here in the Latter-day Live studio, it is my pleasure to have a guest. We have so much to talk about. This could really be part one of a five-part series, <laughs> because my guest has had such a fascinating life. Uh, Charlie Mullins-Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I am so thrilled that you are here. I, I seriously just cannot wait to hear your whole story. Uh, but before we get into all the amazing things you're doing, and it's a lot, we're going to talk about a lot of projects. You are a busy, busy woman. Busy woman, yes. <laughs> yes. Before we get into all that, let's hear a little bit about uh, your early life. Where are you from? Sure. So I was born and raised in uh, northeastern Utah. Mm. I grew up in a little tiny farming community called Arcadia. No one's ever heard of it. That's okay. This has been a trend. Like we've had probably... <laughs> Four of our last seven guests have been from a town I yeah, haven't heard just of. out of obscurity, right? And Arcadia is still there? Arcadia, well, okay, so they took away um, our post office, mm. um, but I, I think that we don't even have our own zip code, so technically, I don't think it is, okay. but in my heart, yes. You are an Arcadian. still there, yes, Absolutely. <laughs> What were you like? What was growing up in Arcadia like? So I I like to fancy myself as a bit of a tomboy. I mm. love being outdoors. I love being active. I was definitely a bookworm. Um, my father was actually killed in a mining accident when I was five. Oh, my um, gosh. There were seven children. The oldest uh, was 14 at the time, and the youngest was just a six-month-old baby. So I think... Um, you know, that really definitely sort of marked my life. Of course. Um, 
had an amazing mother, the most remarkable woman I've ever known. Yeah. Um, and so it was a it was a happy childhood, but we didn't have a lot. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of times outdoors, a lot of times, a lot of time reading books. Yeah. Uh, working hard. Uh, we lived on a farm. Wow. And I can't um, imagine. I, now, five years old. That's kind of for at least for me memories start to kind of kick in at about five. Mm-hmm. How well do you remember that whole time with, yeah, with losing very your well. father? Remarkably well. It was very vivid yeah. from, for you. Wow. Absolutely, yes. Uh, we had the entire extended family. We lived in Arcadia, like a, a quarter mile up the road where my grandparents, a quarter mile the other direction where some cousins and my uncle lived a, a half a mile that direction. Mm. So a big clan. Uh, but we had all, we were all gathered actually for a family home evening um, when we got the news. My father worked swing shift at a Gilsonite mine, which a lot of people have never heard of Gilsonite. It's similar to coal. Um, and um, so, yeah, a, a cousin uh, had gotten the news and came and delivered the news. And no, I remember, I remember it all very well. I have some very vivid, fun memories of my father. How wonderful. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. What a blessing that is. Absolutely. Yeah. So here you are growing up. I already just admire the heck out of your mother. Amazing you know, woman. I mean, I see how hard it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we have seven children. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard with, with two parents very yeah. involved. And then you get into your high school years. Most of us kind of start to form our likes and everything then. Were you a student, uh, an athlete? I, both, yes, I did. I actually held the record for high jump in my school. No kidding. Wow. That's awesome. So I I was a high jumper. I played um, softball. I played volleyball, played basketball. Um, But mainly, yeah, I think my identity sort of coalesced around being, uh, I was an exceptional student. I was a very serious student. But so you're a great student. You're going through high school, high school finishes. Where did that take you? So we actually moved from that little tiny farming community in Arcadia the summer before my junior year in high school, which is a hard time to move. That is a hard time. A hard to time. Move. We moved to Twin Falls, Idaho. And um, we like to joke, my husband and I, because his family moved from California to Twin Falls, Idaho the exact same summer. Mm. And uh, we were both 16. And we like to joke that I moved from the sticks to the big, you know, <laughs> city of Twin Falls. And he moved from the city to the sticks of yeah. Twin Falls, Idaho. But uh, yeah, so we actually met as 16-year-olds. We were good friends. I wouldn't say we were high school sweethearts, but we were, I would say, best friends, best buds. And uh, so that that was fun, and that made the transition a little easier. Sure. Um, so I graduated from Twin Falls High School, and then I uh, came to Brigham Young University, mm. and then I served a full-time mission uh, in the Milan, Italy mission. Wow. Yeah, it was fantastic. Beautiful area, no? Beautiful. Do you have the great love of Italy that I so have many a tremendous love missionaries of have? Italy, of Italian food, of the language, of the mm. art. It was wonderful because I'm uh, sort of an art history geek. And um, so to be able to see, 
you know, some of those terms. Where all the masters are the, from. That's, I mean, that's that's, that's, that's the epicenter the right Renaissance. there. Yeah, it was oh, fantastic. Awesome. So I got home from my mission, and literally two days later, still suffering jet lag, reverse culture shock, all of that. Two <laughs> two days, two days after I returned from the mission, um, my my friend who became my husband. Uh, asked if I wanted to go to the temple with him. He had returned from his mission about six months earlier. Mm. And uh, our temple at that time was Lo- the Logan Temple. Yeah. And so we drove to the Logan Temple. A little bit of a trek. A bit of a trek. And I was in, again, you know, jet lag days. And in the celestial room, he asked me to marry him. Two days well, after two you days. got we had We had never kissed. <laughs> we had never held hands. But he just knew... <laughs> Charlie, that's amazing. <laughs> so I didn't say yes. I said, I'll let you know. I'll get back with you on that. Yeah, he had to wait and agonize. I made him suffer uh, about three and a half weeks before I finally Three and said a half yes. weeks? That's a long time yeah. to have that hanging out yeah. there. Yeah, well, you know how it is when you're just home from a mission. Yeah. And it's, you know, everything's just... It takes a while. Yeah. That's one of the best stories I have heard. Yeah, it was great. Well, you know, it took three and a half weeks. I knew I had to have a confirmation yeah, that sure. this was right. And and it took me that long to get that Good confirmation. But it's once awesome. I did, no looking back. And what did you study at BYU? I studied uh, humanities with an emphasis. I have both an undergraduate and graduate degree um, in humanities with emphases in art history and English. Very, very cool. Yeah. Did you have an idea at the time what you thought you'd do with your degree? From the time I was probably, I don't know, six, seven years old, when I first really fell in love with books, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And since I was a child, I wanted to write children's books. And awesome. I never wavered from that. I always knew that's what I wanted to do. So I taught at BYU for a while, and um, and I was doing a lot of writing. Uh, I, I sort of got sidetracked with academic writing for a while. So mm. I was writing for scholarly journals. I was writing uh, for adults poetry, short stories, essays, um, criticism, and uh, but always in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, you know, once I'm through raising these kids, and once I'm through teaching at BYU, and when life slows down, right, yeah. then I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do and write children's books. And it was always the children's book in the back, uh, in the back of your head. Yes, yes. So when did you finally make that happen? And I have your list of books here. What was the first book? So, so that's a really great question. I was. T- it was probably. Well, certainly one of the busiest times of my life. I was teaching at BYU. I had four at that time, four young children, including a baby. Um, I was in the PTA. I was in the primary presidency. My um, mother um, was dealing with cancer at that time. Oh, my. And um, and after she had a double mastectomy, she had to have emergency back surgery soon after. And she ended up staying in my home. So I was caring for my mother. My husband had to have rotator cuff surgery. He and my mother arrived from the hospital on the same day. Uh, so it was a With crazy busy time. With four small kids time. at home and your yes. teaching. And all, and, and you PTA thought, and hey, yeah. I should write a children's yeah. book well, while I'm happened, at it. Exactly. What happened was I woke up one morning and, you know, that kind of 
that space where you're not fully awake, but you're not really asleep. Yeah. And I had this idea for a book come to me almost fully formed. I mean, I knew the beginning, the middle, and the end. I didn't know all of the rest of the stuff, but I knew I had to write it. And so it just so happened that a friend, a colleague at BYU had invited me that weekend to help with an SCBWI conference. That's the Society of Children's Book Writers and mm. Illustrators um, here in the Provo Orem area. And, um, and so I went to that conference and I came home so inspired and I, you know, just a few days previously had had that idea and, um, and I thought, okay, I've got to write it. And so that was my first book. Uh, it was a middle grade novel. And I wrote it between the hours of about 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Because that's the only <laughs> time it was quiet. Oh and I had uninterrupted time. Yes. And um, it took about four months of that to get a, a first draft, rough and dirty, that's uh, quick. produced. And what was that book called? It was called Circle Dance. Circle Dance. Yes. Okay. And um, and so that was my very first book. And then I, after that, it really about killed me. <laughs> and after that, I decided to to write picture books because they're shorter. Sure. That's a, yes. It sounds like a really dumb reason. Did Circle but, Dance? Did you did you end up publishing Circle Dance? So Circle Dance was actually published by Bookcraft. Oh yeah. And sure. it was just, it was literally four months before Bookcraft and Deseret Book merged. Wow. So um, so it was a book that I had, I had not written that book specifically for an LDS audience, although it has an LDS context. It's largely autobiographical. Mm. And, um, and so after the merger, it was Corey Maxwell, the son of Neil A. Maxwell, who was the editor editor who acquired the book and once that merger happened he was ta he sort of was moved into a different position and oversaw i think it was the doctrinal stuff mm. so the book sort of fell through the cracks and um and so i reached out to Corey and asked if i could actually get the rights back because i wanted to that that book was my apprenticeship yeah and i'm not sure it should have ever been published Mm. <laughs> so I wish someone would have told me that. <laughs> I'm sure it's amazing but, because it did get published. Well, it did get published. But we can be more critical of our own sure. writing. But I knew it could be better. And it was a story that was so important to me that I my challenge was making sure the writing was worthy of the story, if that makes yeah, sense. Right, right, right. So I did get the rights back. And then I spent the next 20 years on and off wor working on that book. But wow. in the meantime, I started focusing on picture books. My right. first picture book was published by G.P. Putnam Sons in New York, so a mm. national publisher. Um, and it's a, a book called um, Keeping Up With Rue. And mm. my next book was published by um, Harcourt, and it's called uh, Just What Mama Needs. Awesome. And I also published another book for with a, an, a local uh, LDS publisher that was called One in a Billion. Yeah, and um, that publisher is no longer exists. It was called Cornerstone, and uh, and then my most recent book uh, was published by Abrams Books in New York City, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it was my first nonfiction. Yeah, uh, it's a, a 
biography for young readers. It's called uh, Library on Wheels, Mary Lemmis Titcomb and America's First Bookmobile. I was so fascinated reading about your book, uh-huh. about Library on Wheels. How how much research did that oh, take? Oh, my word. <laughs> I mean, this was the first, so so this was the first bookmobile yeah. in America. Right, exactly. It was this woman who, who um, came up with this idea. She was a librarian. She had never married. Her whole life was the library. She was head librarian of a library in Hagerstown, Maryland. And this was back around the turn of the century. Her idea was she had this very democratic idea about books and literacy. And she said, you know, books are for everyone. They're not just for men. They're not just for adults. They're not just for the rich. Uh, they're for everyone. And so she wanted to make sure that everyone in the county uh, had access to the books that the library held. So she came up with this idea to, she designed it herself, uh, and it was a, a horse-drawn wagon with shelves. Um, <laughs> and she said, if the man can't come to the library, let's take the library to the man. And soon other bookmobiles began popping up in other parts of the of the world in the night by the 1960s, there were uh, thousands of bookmobiles in America serving over 50 million people. I love the design of the book. The book designer did a fantastic yeah. job. It's got this very vintage feel, scrapbooky almost kind of feel. And every when I first uh, signed the contract with Abrams for the book, the idea was I would provide, I would find and provide about fifteen to twenty archival images mm. for the book, and then they would hire an illustrator for the rest. Uh, well, as I started finding these fantastic archival images, and I, I mean, I could talk. It would take too long for me to go into all of the detail of how I was able to find some of these images. Uh, but when my editor saw what I was finding, he said, you know what, let's have it be all archival images, no illustrations awesome. whatsoever. So now it was awesome, but I was now suddenly responsible for 50 to 60 <laughs> archival images that I had to find and get, and get the permissions yeah. for as well. So, But it was a, it was a wonderful journey. Um, I, I, again, I could talk all day about it, but... And, and I want to I make sure we get this in now. If people want to find your books... Charleeglenn.com. That's S-H-A-R-L-E-E-G-L-E-N-N.com. We've got, you know, a certain amount of time left. We could spend the rest of it talking about your books. But a few years ago, the U.S. was in an interesting time as we were going through an election, and this gave birth to an organization that you are one of the founders of. Let's talk a little bit about Mormon Women sure. for Ethical Government. Yes, so, yes, on January 26, 2017, my life changed forever. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And, and it was all sort of an accident. I say it was an accident, but if it was an accident, it was a divine accident. And I, yeah. I recognize that. So what happened? I sit on the board um, for an LDS uh, women's literary journal called mm. Segula, and we have an online a private forum where we conduct a lot of our our business. And during the entire 2016 election cycle, periodically we would get distracted from journal business and start talking about what was happening uh, in the world of politics. And we were all extremely concerned, especially 
about the ultra hyperpolarization, yeah. the divisiveness, the vitriol. Mm-hmm. We all knew and sometimes experienced ourselves, you know, like long-standing relationships falling apart because of politics right and or you know family members not speaking to each other because they were on different sides and and it was very very concerning to us and um and so we were talking about that again um shortly after the inauguration in January of 2017 after the inauguration of President Trump and we were concerned because um, he there was the travel ban. There were all of these executive orders dealing with um, refugees and with immigrants, and um, and we were concerned about that. And so we were talking about it. And I said, you know what? Why don't I set up a separate Facebook group for us, a closed group, where those of us who want to talk about this and maybe talk about ways that we could combine our efforts and actually maybe do some good and and. You know, talk about how we might be able to heal some of this, um, whatever it is that's happening that's causing this tremendous division. Yeah. And um, and that way we can keep journal business here and we can talk <laughs> right. about this other stuff here. So I said, who's interested? And there were, I would say, maybe 20, 22 women who said, absolutely, add me. And so I uh, spent, I stayed up until 2 a.m. on, uh, well, it was January 26th. 2017, a date that will live on in infamy. (laughs) (laughs) And I stayed up until uh, two o'clock setting up this Facebook group. The interesting thing, and I've thought about this so much, I truly thought I was setting up a group for 20 or so close friends where we could talk about this. and, And I really did want to to sort of not just talk, but to mobilize and say, how what can we actually do, and and, and be effective, and so. Um, but for some reason, I spent a lot of time thinking about guidelines for the group, hmm. and so I put in place some very strict guidelines. I said things like, "This will be a, a space." of civility. We will, um, there will be no vitriol. There will be no ad hominem Mm. attacks. There will be no name calling. There will be no, you know, we will, even when we disagree, we will disagree agreeably and we will be civil. And, and I, and, and I decided that we would be guided by the six principles of nonviolence as practiced by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. and Gandhi and others. And so I had all of that in place before I added anyone. The first person I added was my daughter and then my uh, one of my best friends who lives in Germany. Um, <laughs> and then I added the other women who had said they were interested. I did not say, <laughs> it didn't ever occur to me to say, don't add anyone else to the group. Because the way Facebook groups are set up, once you have been added, you can add other people. Yeah, you have so to I actually change say, that setting if you don't want that. Exactly. To an admin And I, I had never set up a Facebook group before. Sure. So I didn't say don't add anyone until we know what we're doing. Well, immediately women started adding like-minded friends who added like-minded friends. Within a few weeks, we had 4,000 members. 4,000 members 4, within members. weeks. 
within a few weeks. Yes. And wow. so uh, that was the end of my life as I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> This was supposed to just be a little Facebook group. Exactly. But clearly there was a bigger plan. We touched a chord. Obviously. Uh, Yeah, obviously. And there were so many women who were, you know, just pouring in and saying, I am so thankful to have found this space. I'm so thankful to have found other sisters who feel the same way I do about this. And so um, at that point, we realized, okay, this is a thing. Yeah, clearly. So, you know, we can. I have two choices here. I can say, uh, "Never mind," and take the whole thing down, or I can, or we can get to work and build a organizational structure that can accommodate all of these energized women. Yes, who who are who were eager to to actually be actors to do what President Nelson has asked us to do, and to speak up and to speak out, wow. and um. So we also, from the very beginning, made it clear that this would be a space. Uh, We have what we call our four core attributes. The first one is we are faithful. Okay, this will be a space where uh, there will be no church bashing whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Our focus is ethical government. It's not church government or church policies or anything like that. Right. Um, There will be no bashing of church leaders. Um, we are respectful of and we support and sustain church leaders, church doctrine. And that is non-negotiable. These awesome. four core attributes are non-negotiable. So the first one is we are faithful. The second one is we are nonpartisan. Mm. We, we welcome women from all across the political spectrum. We don't care if you're a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, a Constitution. We don't care. You don't even have to tell us. We don't ever have to talk yeah. about it. We askew labels. We think that's part of the problem where we are going to come together and find common ground is in that area of ethics. So that is what our focus is going to be. So that's the second pillar. The the third pillar is peaceful. We are a peaceful organization. We are nonviolent. Awesome. And um, and we will we take very seriously our commitment to civility. And when I say civility, I don't mean mere politeness. I mean civility in the true sense of the word. If you go back to the Latin and the the old French um, uh, meanings of civility, it has to do with the duties of a citizen. And so it has more to do with a deep respect. It's with actually seeing every other as a child of God and recognizing and acknowledging that spark of divinity that is in them and treating them with deep respect. I didn't know these values were allowed on Facebook. I didn't know you could be <laughs> nonpartisan, respectful, faithful. You know, it, it was... What a refreshing group. I mean, yeah. this is awesome. Well, and the fourth pillar is proactive. Again, we didn't want to just be about talk. We didn't want to be a discussion group where all we do is vent uh, and vociferate. We want to be a group that actually does something. Oh, awesome. So those pillars have really guided us. Uh, as you can imagine in the beginning, um, this is, again, a Facebook group, yeah. a discussion group. So 4,000 women who have things to say. <laughs> yeah, who want to be involved. <laughs> who want to be involved and who and who want to have a voice. And some of them, you know, I think we had people initially maybe on the far edges of both 
ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Who, uh, and I mean political spectrum, not... <laughs> sure. But, yeah. uh, I think we knew. <laughs> maybe the other two as well. Possibly that too. But anyway, I think that those on the extreme edges very quickly realized this probably wasn't a space for them yeah. and left. And um, and those that stayed learned very quickly that we were very serious about those guidelines. Was and that hard at first? It was very hard at first. Was there a lot of, oh, yeah, certainly the Republicans or certainly the Democrats are guilty of that? A little bit of that, although, again, we made it clear that we weren't about labels yeah, and that good. there would be no ad hominem attacks whatsoever. They just simply wouldn't be tolerated. So um, for a while... <laughs> The uh, the group of the initial, we called ourselves founding members, there were initially six of us, we just weren't sleeping because we had members from not just the U.S., and so every time zone, and so we were up pretty much 24-7 just trying to moderate just moderating, and, and, yeah. and figure out, I mean, immediately we started organizing. Mormon women are, I mean members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, <laughs> who are women, are good at yes. organizing, right? And plus, we knew. So we like to say we thought we had set up this little parlor where 20 close friends could sit around sipping their herbal tea and discussing, <laughs> you know, politics. And instead, we found ourselves with 4,000 women trying to crowd into that little parlor, and we had to build a convention center in order to accommodate them. So we started working very early at, uh, you know, building an organizational structure that could accommodate that many women. We started setting up state chapters. We now have chapters in every state except, I believe, the Dakotas. Um, we have some international chapters. We immediately started forming various committees and uh, building a leadership team and um, and issuing calls to action and writing op-eds and, you know, just finding ways to really uh, amplify our voices in, in a way that would model this civility to which we were so committed. Yeah. And, and we eventually adapted those principles of nonviolence um, to, for our own purposes, and we now call them the six principles of peacemaking. So awesome. we see ourselves as as peacemakers. That's what we we want to do. And um, when we do speak out, it's been when um, an ethical line has clearly been crossed. Yeah. So, um, which is right in harmony with the church. Yeah. I mean, the church is pretty loath to get involved in political issues, but when it crosses that line mm -hmm. of ethics. Right. The church will step in, and sometimes right. it'll step in with funding. It'll make a bigger statement mm -hmm. by saying, we're going to fund right. a charity yeah. to make I, a, a I statement. Mean, the, right. The church has made some very strong statements about immigration, for example. For sure. That's what I was thinking of. Family separation yeah. issues, yes. Yeah. Now, this has spilled <clears throat> over, not just in Facebook now. Now you have groups meeting. You have groups yes. doing physical advocacy. Yes, absolutely. And that started very quickly as well. I think our first public um, prayer vigil, we called it, was in April. So just a few months after we started. And, um, and that was, it was a prayer vigil held on behalf of a woman, wonderful woman, her name is Teresa, she's become a dear, dear friend, um, who was the single mother of a disabled U.S. citizen child who was um, being deported back to Colombia. Mm. 
and we we heard about this situation and i mean everything happened so quickly um i was able to speak when i first spoke with teresa it just so happened that her bishop was standing right there so i was able to speak with her bishop right away he you know vouched for her character and and i was able to find out a little more about her situation and we knew this was something that we needed to do so we organized a prayer vigil at the salt lake airport on the morning she was actually being deported mm. to Colombia. And um, we had a lot of help from some other organizations in the state. And um, we sent out a press release, and we had, I believe, every major media outlet in the state and some national media there um, covering it. And we felt so strongly about this. I mean, the more, and even now, the more I find out about the situation, the more I meet members of the family, the more I see. So this was a situation where she'd come legally to the U.S. Um, and on a fiance visa. And then when she got here, the man that she was to marry turned out to be not such a nice guy. And so she didn't marry him and she did, she overstayed her visa. Yeah. And she had been here um for 20 years, over 20 years. Um, and had, I, I mean, one of her nieces said, the worst thing my aunt has ever done is drive too slow on I-15. <laughs> I, I mean, that she did, she got a ticket. She got yeah. one ticket in her life for driving too slow on I-15. But she was, she's the most wonderful, warm, loving yeah. person. And she, she did marry then, and she had a son who has cerebral palsy. And um, also epilepsy. Did she marry a citizen? She married a citizen. Yeah, this this story is astonishing. It's to astonishing. Me. This is the kind of stuff yes. that is happening right now. Yes. So she she later she and her husband divorced. He ended up being not such a great guy. Anyway, that I won't get into that. But the marrying of a citizen. Married a citizen. Well, and that it, it gets really complicated, and I won't get into all yeah. the details. But for various reasons. Her husband would not apply for her. Anyway, gotcha. we won't okay. get into that. But sure. he, um, so they divorced, and she had sole care of their son, who um, who was born with cerebral palsy. Yeah, and uh, she lived in Salt Lake with, uh, and she worked uh, for JetBlue. She provided insurance for her son who had many medical needs. She helped care for lots of nieces and nephews. She was caring for her 82-year-old mother who was a legal permanent resident and later became a citizen. And she every year she had shown up for her appointments with ICE and because of her circumstances had been given stays of removal um, and except for 2017. Oh. And when she went to her appointment, she was given an order of deportation. And um, and so we didn't find out about this until I believe it was two days actually before she was to be deported. And so we were working with, we were working with Senator Hatch's office and with Congressman, I mean, we were doing everything that we could to help this woman. And there was just there was nothing to be done. Oh, Charlie. And she ended up being deported. The day after she was deported, her 24-year-old niece, who suddenly found herself caring for this boy... Um, with cerebral palsy. With cerebral palsy, called me and she said, 
I don't know what to do. Jeffrey is having seizures. His mother was always the one who took care of him. We know he has medication for it, but does he even have insurance now? His mother's gone. What do we do? It just, it's it's crazy. No one benefited from having this mother deported. Yeah. You know, and leaving her son, we had we had to go to work and help him get on Medicaid, yeah, so that his expenses could be covered. So, who benefited yeah, who, from what this? Was, yeah, I, I. The reason I wanted you to tell that whole story is I wanted an example of the advocacy you do because yeah. one of the problems is that we have right now is people. It's whoever's loudest gets heard, yeah. and it we tend to like things in black and white. Oh, if illegal immigrants should go. No, they should stay. There's a whole lot in the middle. And Mm -hmm. when you get to know the human story and you understand the plight of a woman, what's the current situation? The current situation is she was deported to Colombia. She's still in Colombia. She's still in Colombia. We've kept in touch with her. Just recently, her son had to have brain surgery at Primary Children's Hospital. And so she tried to apply for a hardship waiver so that she could come back just to be with him for like two weeks while he went through the surgery and was recuperating. She was denied, denied, denied. You're just, I I wanted to hear this story because it's a perfect illustration of why we need your organization. Yeah. I mean, I, and I love the name Mormon women for ethical government. That's what we all want, right? I mean, in our core, we all want, we all want that. There are different people who think there are different ways to get there. Unfortunately, it's always, my side, your side, yeah. which, by the way, there's another book that gets very into my side, your side, about some ancient people who come to the Americas. <laughs> it didn't work out well That's for them right. either. Tribalism and, is never a good thing. Yeah. And uh, it'd be kind of nice if we could go to the reign of judges. I, If people <laughs> want to get involved with Mormon Women for Ethical Government, Best to go to the Facebook page? No, best to go to the website, website. which is www org, mm. Or you can type in mormonwomenforethicalgovernment.org. But MWEG works just as well. Are men allowed and to get involved in this? Sorry, no. My husband and my sons are <laughs> still very upset <laughs> with me. But um, we, th- we've had some talk of um, there are some men that actually want to um, sort of organize a a brother organization rather than a sister organization um, called Friends of MWEG or something like that. Yeah. But right now it is limited Good. to women. No offense to my own gender. We've messed things up enough. <laughs> I, I want people to understand that we're not anti-men. <laughs> we no, love I, men. I get that. We love men. But we have found that even from just a strategic yeah. point of view, uh, there's a real power that comes with being an all-women's organization. It sort of brought a lot of attention uh, to us in the early days. There yeah. was a lot of national coverage. And we thought, okay, rather than being uncomfortable with this, let's let's go ahead and embrace it and use it to our advantage in order to help uh, promote the message. Has it surprised people? Have people said like, Very oh, much. I thought Mormon women were subservient yes. and quiet and all these yes. other things. Yes. In fact, just a funny little story. Yeah, please. Earlier this year, our executive director, whose name is Emma Petty Adams, she lives in Nebraska, 
fantastic, fantastic leader. Um, she and I were uh, invited to attend an event in Washington, D.C. It was called the Summit for Democracy. And it was um, <clears throat> a gathering, a convening of, I believe there were over 62 different organizations throughout the U.S., all focused on sort of healing the divide mm. and, you know, bipartisanship or nonpartisanship, just, you know, coming together. And, um, and so it was a really very enlightening time. But while we were there, again, there were people from all over the country. And I was sitting at one table and Emma was sitting at another table during um, one of the sessions. And she was sitting next to a woman. And when you know she introduced herself, this woman said, Mormon women, are they even allowed out of the house? I mean, no, she really said really? that. And it was just at that time. So one of the speakers was Senator Coons. Mm. And as he was leaving, he had finished his speech, and he was leaving kind of with his entourage protecting him to go out of the building because he had to go somewhere else. Um, and I really, I had a document, something that we've been working on for a long time. It's called Our Citizens Proposal for Ethical Immigration Reform. And it's a sort of a compromise bipartisan um, proposal that we think most Americans would could agree upon. Wow. Um, and so I wanted to get that into his hands. That was all happening as Emma's having this conversation with the woman. <laughs> and Emma laughed and she looked over. And, and just at that point, Senator Coons was coming down. I stopped him. I was talking with him. And Emma laughed and she said, see that woman? She's our founder. That, <laughs> that's how timid we are. <laughs> that is what Mormon women do. That's we right. do things. Exactly. Uh, Oh, Charlie, I love that so much. That is just awesome. Well, I'm, I think your organization is awesome. I love the goals. I love it even more that, it, that you won't allow someone like me to join and mess things up, <laughs> I think is just makes it stronger. But then like, you must have just been sitting around going, you know, all this free time, <laughs> all this free time that I have, oh, my goodness. you know, Time for another organization. Tell yeah. us about the Everyone Belongs Project. Okay, right. Yes. Um, I had been invited, along with our Utah chapter leads of MWEG, to attend um, a dinner and a, uh, a dinner in Salt Lake that was hosted by the Utah Muslim Civic League. Mm. And... Um, it the the guest speaker was a woman. Her name is Dahlia, and now I've just forgotten her last name. Mm. But she's a Muslim woman who works for a think tank in Washington D.C., and she spends a lot of time visiting schools and talking to people. And basically, what she's doing is myth busting when it comes to Islam. Awesome. And so she's talking about how. Uh, you know, basically, not all Muslims are terrorists. Of very, course. You know, it's the extremists, and not all Muslims live, uh, the majority of Muslims don't even live in the Middle East, they live in Asia, you know, just all kinds of things like that. Anyway, she's a, a fabulous woman and scholar. Which, and by the way, is a message that we can appreciate. Yes, I get exactly. asked, when I, I travel almost every week, do you have multiple you have wives? Yeah, exactly. Do you all live in Utah? Are you yes. all white? 
I mean, members I get, of the church should appreciate that and yes. empathize more than almost anyone else. Yes. So anyway, she came to this dinner, and it was a dinner again hosted by the Utah Muslim Civic League. But there were representatives there, there from the community, uh, from the um, Jewish community, from the Sikh community, from mm. the Latter Day Saint community, and it was just this wonderful. Um, it, it was just like this little mini Zion almost. It was just, uh, just watching the mutual respect and admiration of all of these various people and, and speaking with people after the dinner. And um, it made me realize that, um, that that kind of camaraderie and community, it, it's possible. It can really yeah. happen. And uh, one of the things that the speaker, Dahlia, said was, you know, the key to almost every problem that we face is education. And that's something that I have long believed. I, I really have long believed that. And so... Um, then something also happened just within that same week um, where someone who's very close to me had an experience, uh, sort of a very ugly, up-close personal experience with overt racism, mm. ugly, ugly racism. And, um, and I started thinking, what can we, what can, and I started hearing more, um, more incidences of um terrible bullying and racism in our schools um, and situation yeah. after situation where, where children were being attacked. And I thought, okay, what can we do about this? And then I, I also had an experience fairly recently where I was, um, I was doing some lobbying in Washington, D.C., and I was, we were working, uh, partnering with a group called Moms Rising, and so I was there uh, with another member of MWEG. So it was me, this other member of MWEG, a friend from Moms Rising who was Muslim, and then a lobbyist who was Jewish. Mm. And so we were walking from one um, senator's building to another, and I just started laughing. I said, we're like the premise of a bad joke. <laughs> Two Mormons, a Muslim, and a Jew walk into a, but it can't be a bar because the Mormons and the Muslims wouldn't be going into a bar. And we all kind of laughed, and it was oh, a walk into a senator's moment. office. Yeah, right. Oh, so anyway, I, I woke up again one morning again, and yeah. this thought came to me, and I and and, and I was thinking, okay, a Mormon, a Muslim, and a Jew. Uh, in the process of um, being involved with MWEG, I've become very good friends with um, with some Jewish women and for, and some Muslim women, and I thought, what if? We were to, to take um, assemblies into our schools here in Utah, and I could reach out to my friend Judy, who's Jewish, and to my friend Mesa, who's Muslim, and it could be a Mormon, a Jew, and a Muslim I walk into it. a school. Oh, and we could, we could talk very directly about, you know, some of the, the whole myth-busting thing. So that was the initial idea. And then it just sort of snowballed and grew. And we decided, okay, let's, yes, let's take assemblies into the schools, but let's have it be a little broader. Not just, let's not just talk about faith-based discrimination, but let's talk about um, ethnicity and race as well. And so we came up with the, uh, the idea, Everyone Belongs. So we Love start it. calling it the Everyone Belongs Project. And um, 
what we plan to do, we're already in process. Um, we're developing assemblies to take into the schools, age-appropriate, engaging, interactive assemblies. We're starting uh, in elementary school, just third through sixth grade. Eventually, we want to actually do kindergarten through yeah. second as well. Um, and then middle school and then high school. And uh, and these will be assemblies that um, that talk about, uh, you know, sadly, the statistics show that um, there has definitely been an upswing in, in like identity-based bullying in our schools. And primarily it takes the form of um, like swastikas drawn on lockers or on notebooks yeah. or uh, girl, Muslim girls having their hijabs pulled off mm-hmm. and, and mocked that way Horrible. or use of the N-word. Um, and so we thought we, we really need to confront this. We're partnering with the ADL, the Anti-Defamation yeah. League, and one of our founding members is uh, actually on the national board of the ADL. And they have a program that's called No Place for Hate. And, and a school can become designated as a No Place for Hate school. Awesome. So we're also trying to um, get that program into many of our schools in Utah. What a positive, incredible message. And to kind of kick things off, your organization did the most beautiful music video. Did you watch it? We had the blessing of having Yahosh Bonner on the show. Oh, you here. did. His okay. brother is Oba. Yes. Who uh, Oba did all of the did the music video with you. Yes, he did and, the rap portion. And yeah, he he is so fantastic as oh, a performer. Okay. Yeah, can and, I talk a little bit about this? Yes, please. We decided we wanted the elementary school assembly to be really fun and upbeat and engaging and I thought what better um, why don't we make it a musical program Mm. and so uh, that's so someone recommended that I get in touch with Ross Booth do you know him I don't know Ross Ross, no Ross Booth and his wife Michelle they're both just these amazingly creative individuals and they said you should contact them and ask them if they would write this assembly for the schools as a as a team. Yeah. And so I reached out to Ross and it was just another one of those amazingly I don't know divine synchronicity or whatever <laughs> you want to call it but he was so on board from the very beginning. Wow. Anyway, Ross said, you know what we really need? We need a theme song for the Everyone Belongs Project. And I said, that's fantastic. He said, we can premiere it at the UN um, workshop. And I'm like, that's in two weeks. <laughs> He's like, let's do this thing. Wow. So Ross, he wrote it. And and his wife was right there too. So he wrote it. He um, arranged it. He We put out the call for auditions he auditioned all these kids that you see in the music video who are amazing. One of them came all the way from St. George to be involved with this. Awesome. He he did the re- rehearsed, he laid the tracks, he got the special guests like Oba, Oba. uh-huh. Yeah. And um and they recorded it and I mean it, it was it, it was I think it was maybe two hours before the UN conference that the final thing oh was gosh. dropped into my Dropbox. <laughs> so we knew we were cutting it close, but it happened and it's incredible. It's beautiful. And we put it up on our, we have a, a website. It's uh, everyonebelongs.life. 
dot life. Dot Everyone life. belongs dot life. Everyone belongs dot com was already taken yeah. in every, but I love that. I dot love life. that dot life. So it's www dot everyone belongs dot life, and uh, or, or we also have a public Facebook page where you can go. It's the Everyone Belongs Project, I think, and Which you can I am watch now following. the video. Yes, yes. And um, I think within the first few days of posting the video, it had something like eighteen thousand. It was followed. It was reported on by the news. Yes. You have a good knack for getting your organizations <laughs> in front of media. Yes. Well, and, and so much. I love So it. much credit has to go to Ross and his wife Michelle. Um, but it's it's exciting. So we've got our theme song. We were able to debut it at the UN conference. It's beautiful. And, and I have to say this too: the wall. We were searching for a wall because Ro- this this was all Ross's vision. Really, the mural and all of With that. The hands. And- so we were looking for a big wall, and we looked everywhere. And somehow, I don't even know the full story, but we were able to connect with someone at the uh, youth detention center. Yeah, that's what I had read. Yes. And so they said, we've got a wall. We would love to have you come and share this message and leave the, mm. the image because our kids behind the barbed wire, they look right out onto that wall. And they, of all people, need that message sure. that, you know, we belong. Oh, Everyone belongs. I love it. I belong, you belong. We all belong on this lonely planet mm. that's floating through space and that's everyone belongs project.life that people yes. can go and yes. check it out and yes. get involved and, we're, and we're get it to their own assemblies. schools and we won't be able to take assemblies into the schools until spring but we're already you know administrators are reaching out to us a lot of people are excited and saying how can we get one of your assemblies in our school so my final question is, what do you do with all your free time, Shirley? <laughs> I mean, you just, do you knit? Do you, I mean, this is amazing. Oh. Can I just tell you, this is why I love the show, is having people on like you who are doing so much to make the world a better place. Uh, before I ask you the real final question that we ask all of our guests, uh, you have a, uh, a phrase or a, a title or whatever that you refer to yourself as an activist that I love so much. And now hearing you, now I really do understand it. How yes, do you describe yourself as an, an activist? I am an accidental activist. An accidental, accidental activist. activist. Never in my <laughs> imagination would uh, I ever have seen. So often, especially in that first crazy year after MWEG started, I, you know, I, was, I would find myself on a plane flying to the UN or to Washington DC to lobby on Capitol Hill or to, you know, I just, I would say, how did this become my life? (laughs) When did this happen? How? I never, ever, ever thought that I would be involved in some of these things. We will share links to all of these things with our Facebook group and our, and on Instagram. So you'll be able to, to find it all there. And again, this should be a three-part series, but we got to squeeze it all into one. So <laughs> we're going to wrap up with the awesome question that we ask for all of our guests, and that is, Charlie, what does being a member of the church mean to you? What does being a member of the church mean to me? It means everything. It means everything to me. It means that I'm part of a covenant community. Mm. Um, I was just reading in Mosiah, um, just this morning, in fact, um, about uh, Alma at the Waters of Mormon. And I was so moved by the way he described 
the baptismal covenant and uh, that idea that we become part of the body of Christ, we become part of a community, we agree, we covenant, in fact, to bear one another's burdens and to mourn with those that mourn. And that is a beautiful thing. That is what this thing we call life is all about. It's about taking care of each other. It's about those two great commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. And um, those covenants that bind us all together um, gives a meaning and a purpose to my life that I don't think I could find in any other way. Mm. And I am, I am utterly grateful to be a member of the church. Just awesome. She is an incredible, incredible woman. She is a wife, a mother, an author. She is the founder of a couple of really amazing organizations, uh, as well as she is an accidental, uh, what was it? Accidental activist. Accidental activist. activist. I love that (laughs) phrase. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. And my special thanks to Charlene Mullins Glenn. What an incredible soul she is. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And we talked for quite a long time. I did a little bit of editing. And and I should say, most of what I cut out was just Charlie giving credit to other people. It felt like every time I paid a compliment, she would tell me why someone else was more responsible for the good things. And she kept raving about how many volunteers there are in her organization. And she's just a humble, wonderful, incredible person. Thank you so much, Charlie. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, you know, I woke up one morning and was in a really bad mood and it was work related. I just, there were some things that I was going to have to deal with that day that I didn't want to deal with. And I was, you know, kind of just in a bad place in my head uh, with my job. That's what was going on that morning. (laughs) And I'm sure you've gotten that way before. If you haven't, then I am truly jealous. But that morning I, I was, which is funny. I really love my job. I love what I do. But uh, that morning I was kind of dragging. And, and so I decided to go to the gym and at least start off my day right. I, I headed down to the gym and was lifting some weights. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw two people walking toward me. And as I got a closer look, it was a young man and a young woman. They each looked like they were about 20 years old. And I noticed that the woman was carrying a cane. And as they got closer, I realized it was a a cane that people with vision impairments would use, a a long white cane. And she was being led by the young man who she kind of had his arm. And as they approached, I noticed that the young man had Down syndrome. And they had cleaning cloths in their hands and some, some type of spray cleaner. And they came over to the free weights and he would spray the free weights and uh, she would wipe them down. And they were obviously working there. I had never seen them there before, but they were working and they were cleaning and they uh, watched them for a while. They were also cleaning some of the cardio machines and whatnot. And as they got closer to me, I saw them just laughing and talking 
and cleaning, and he was helping her to find all the right spots, and he was they were so diligent in how they were doing it, and they were just having a wonderful day, and it just made me smile. And in addition to warming my heart, I had the funniest thought come into my head, and that was, you know what, Sean, you better check yourself. I've been very blessed to have a good job. And seeing these two wonderful young people take so much pride in their work and so much joy in their tasks, I was truly touched, and I realized I just need to get outside of my own head. And I was so thankful to see them and to be lifted up that way. And and again, I think sometimes we we get to be that person for some people. Sometimes we get to lift up others when we're in a good mood, and other times we just need to be lifted I'm a little bit emotional thinking about them and how much joy they had. And I realized that happiness really is a choice, that I was choosing to be miserable over trivial little things. And it turned my day around. I was a completely different person for the rest of the day as I took on my own tasks with joy. And I'm so thankful for those two wonderful people who will never know how much they touched my life that morning. And I just hope that sometimes I can be that for others who need a little bit of a lift. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We sure appreciate it. If you enjoy the show and could think to uh, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on, we would certainly appreciate it. It helps others to find the show or maybe leave us a review on Facebook. And if you're not following us on Facebook, please do. Just search for Latter-day Lives. We're also on Instagram as well as on Twitter. If you want to reach me directly, uh, you can email me at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. And so until we meet again, please remember as always, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. 